Good morning, beloved. Everyone answered the name tag question, but have you ever met someone of influence or power, like substantial influence or power? Reggie, my hype man, was actually my answer, but you know, that was you. That was you, brother. A uh, few years ago, so if you'll enter into this with me, I went to my first ever like professional Christian conference. Um, they're a very interesting thing, mind you. Um, if you are into just studying behavior and such, that's just an interesting place to be. A bunch of professional Christians, so to speak, um, that are in ministry. And so this is my first time going to such a thing, and I was on staff with another church, and I went with a group of, of people, and one of the individuals who happened to be driving the car, because this person would get car sick if this person was not driving, was like the very antithesis of everything that I am personality-wise. Like the most loud, outgoing, just extroverted person you can imagine and then add some to it. And that's who this person was and they're driving. And so the, the whole scenario starts with us arriving in the parking lot and this is um, like full-on hype mode. There are people in the parking lot with big signs that are like talking us up like, you're awesome and all this stuff with lots of exclamation points. And so they're dancing and everything. And it's like, okay, here we go. We're getting into this. And um, there are cones telling you like, this is the direction to go. Follow the cones. And the person driving is just like, I don't know what to do. She's just getting really excited about the people who are really excited to see us. And meanwhile, I'm starting to have a little panic attack like, oh no. Um, So in the meantime, she's like, I don't know what to do with this huge smile on her face. And I'm like, follow the the cones so she drives on top of the cones and so, like we just keep going and I turn around and look and realize like at least one of the cones is now missing it's under the car and we're just driving with it and so I'm just like sinking into the seat like oh god help like make this all stuff I knew I shouldn't have come here um, so we get inside and it's like a massive arena so there are so many people here and of course the driver we'll just call her the driver the driver's like we're going to the front row. I'm like, no, 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 we're not. But everyone starts going to the front row. So I go down to the front row. It's like a few minutes before this all begins. And so we make it to the front row. And if you don't know me, this is just not normal for me. Like even what I'm doing right now requires only by God's grace. So I make it to the front row and I take my seat and I'm like, I'm parked. It's like zeroed in. The good thing about being in the front row is now everyone else is behind you. So you can just kind of pretend like they don't exist anymore. Now I'm here. Oh, this is, okay. Settle in. And this guy comes walking up towards me. The others have like walked off. They're going to the bathroom or getting whatever. They need to check out the merch table and all this stuff. And, and so I'm just like, okay, I've made it to the seat. I'm just going to stay here. This is my little world. This guy comes walking, makes a beeline for me. And I'm like, oh, okay, brace yourself. Here we go, conversation. I don't know him, but he was super nice. He's just like, hey, how are you? I was like, oh, I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing okay, much better than a few minutes ago, but I'm doing all right. Like, my name's Kevin, what's your name? And he gets this puzzled look on his face. He's like, oh, my name's such and such. I'm like, all right, and he's like, yeah, that's a, that's a really cool shirt. I was like, oh, that's really nice. I don't want to tell you that I've had it for 10 years. My mom bought it for me. <laughs> but, uh, but, so I just, like, all right, carry on. He walks away. Driver comes back. He's like, you met him? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I did. <laughs> and then he walks up on stage, and the conference begins, and everyone's, like, all cheering and stuff. I'm like, oh, well, I hope that wasn't offensive to him when I asked his name. <laughs> and now I'm thinking, like, really, really bad stuff here, like, but two predominant thoughts here. 
One, no, I'm close enough. I have to make eye contact with him <laughs> while he's talking. Um, but two, I looked down and I was like, this is a cool shirt, isn't it? <laughs> I still have that shirt. Um, but you know what it's like to meet people who have power or influence, um, even if you're dumb to it. But this, this is how this goes. You know the feeling of entering a new environment and immediately trying to establish what's the pecking order here. Like, is it okay for me to be in this seat? Or, like, all these different things. Like, we're constantly, and men, you know this. Like, we talked about this with one of the groups at the marriage conference, but, like, the, the natural language of men is respect. And so, wives, respect your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Like, we have these natural languages. Men, we speak the language of respect. We're always sizing things up, and we want to give proper respect, or we want to earn respect. We want to be given respect, all this stuff. And so we know the tension of trying to figure out where are we when it comes to power, when it comes to influence, whether that's in a small room or in a large room, um, you know that tension. So today, we, we want to wrestle through that, um, how we recognize power or authority. And so we're gonna be continuing in our series, going through the gospel according to Luke. So if you have your copy of scripture on a device or your physical copy, turn to Luke chapter eight for today. We'll be in Luke chapter eight. And we're picking up before another narrative that we left off a few weeks ago. Um, but Luke chapter 8, um, this is the part of kind of a mini-series within our larger series going through the Gospel of Luke. Um, and so we looked at how Jesus showed up in his hometown, Nazareth. You remember, they rejected him. They tried to throw him off of a cliff. Like, it was not good for him. But that all started with him standing in the synagogue, the local house of worship, so to speak. He gets up. And he reads from the scroll of Isaiah. He reads what we know as Isaiah chapter 61 with a little bit of chapter 58 thrown into it. And he reads this part, and this is what he says. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He reads that, and the room is silent. And then he sits down to expound on what he read, and he says, you know, today while you're listening, this has been fulfilled. And they're all just like, what? <laughs> what did you say? And they drive him up a cliff or a hillside where they want to throw him over a cliff. Um, but what we're doing is we're going and looking at how Jesus actually fulfills this, that the Spirit really is on him, and he's carrying out this mission. And so we're looking at how he does this systematically. We've gone through different stories. And so today we're going to emphasize when he said to set free the oppressed. So look with me in Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 22. Luke chapter 8, verse 22, it reads, One day he, being Jesus, and his disciples got into a boat, and he told them, Let's cross over to the other side of the lake. This is the Sea of Galilee. So they set out, and as they were sailing, he fell asleep. Then a fierce windstorm came down on the lake. They were being swamped and were in danger. They came and woke him up, saying, Master, Master, we're going to die. <laughs> the Sea of Galilee. Um, simple geography for you. The Sea of Galilee is about 700 feet below sea level. So you come from the Mediterranean Sea at sea level and you go into ancient Palestine, what we would call modern day Israel. In this state, the geography, it kind of comes to this basin. So it's 700 feet below sea level and it's surrounded by hills. On the east side of the Sea of Galilee, there are very steep hills. And so you know the basic principle of physics that heat rises 
And so as heat rises, cool air falls, it's condensed, and so it's heavier, it falls. So these steep hills have this cool air from a higher altitude, and that cool air falls down quickly. And it falls down quickly over the Sea of Galilee where there's warm air concentrated over it. As that cold air and that warm air collide, you can talk to one of the science teachers in the room, but it's amazing, it creates storms. And so, like this morning, as a cold front is coming through, a difference in temperatures, they clash, you get rain and wind and so forth. On the Sea of Galilee, that happens in this microcosm to where it happens quickly. Like, it's unpredictable when a storm is going to come, so these storms are quick, and yet you have professional fishermen on board, remember? Some of these disciples, Jesus called from boats. They know what it is like to be on the water and be caught by a squall. And yet, the professional fishermen who, mind you, don't seem to be very good at fishing as we see throughout the Gospels, they, they're worried. And so we should read that and say, like, this is no joke. Water is coming into the boat. It's a sizable enough boat that the disciples, and likely if you go back a couple chapters, you realize there's some other women with them that are supporting the ministry. So there's quite a few people on this boat. It's a sizable enough boat that this should not be happening. And yet they're in real danger here. The boat is sinking. What is Jesus doing? He's sleeping. While everyone else is freaking out, Jesus is being rocked to sleep in the sovereign hand of God the Father as the boat rocks back and forth. If, if you use the Jesus Storybook Bible, which I hope you do with your kids, it's just so good. <laughs> with the, the picture, the illustration for this story, it just cracks me up because the boat is at nearly a 90 degree angle and <laughs> Jesus is like up in the bow just like... <laughs> <laughs> So the disciples are shaking Jesus like, Master, Master, we're dying. <laughs> this is not good. And like, you're the pros. <laughs> Jesus is asleep. That's because Jesus is apocalyptic. And this is what I so want for you. And that word apocalyptic sounds scary, but it just means you can see what's hidden. There's something revealed that Jesus can sleep in the midst of the storm because he knows something more than just what they can see. I so hope that our worship gatherings are like that for you. I hope that your conversations with each other are like that for you throughout the week. That it's so easy to walk out and like, yeah, that was great. You know, the, felt the spirit moving in the worship. Man, I wish we would have sang that song again. Like, man, that really kind of clicked for me during the teaching. I, I, like, I understood something new about God. I love that, that feeling of intimacy, like, oh, I learned. Or like, man, just, I just reminded of the gospel. I saw the bread, I saw the cup, and I remember that Jesus actually, literally died for me in love. And it feels good to know that I'm loved. But now I gotta go face the world. Back to the real world. Like, no, 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 no. This is what is real. This is what is real. And Jesus could live in a constant state of that, so much so that the storm is raging. And they're like, we're dying. And Jesus is like, this is great sleeping weather. This is wonderful, isn't it? And we have to see there's so much more. And then carry that into the world. But the disciples here wake him up in their fear. And so let's keep going. The second part, verse 24, says, Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waves. So they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, well, where's your faith? They were fearful and amazed, asking one another, who then is this? He commands even the winds and the waves and they obey him? Jesus is awoken to some scared guys. He's not scared. And what does he do? 
He rebukes the winds and the waves. He rebukes them. Like this is the language of confrontation. That he stands against them. This begs the question, how does the other party respond? I used to be a high school teacher and it was just always so fun to watch kids fight. Like, I don't mean that in a bad way. Like, it's the, like, like, they get in each other's face and it's like, and then like kind of pushing chest against each other. You're like, are you guys gonna kiss? What's happening here? You're like, what is this? And then they start the push and the other one pushes and you're like, look, would you just stop? Obviously, you don't really wanna fight. But it's a question of which party is going to back down. And then tragically, you get a bunch of, numbskulls, we'll call them, that come together and they want to see it so much that now there's the social pressure that they feel like they have to fight. But this is the thing. You have this confrontation and in any confrontation, the question becomes, will one party back down or will they clash? Jesus wakes up, rebukes the wind and the waves. What does the other party do? What do the wind and the waves do? They obey immediately. <sighs> Dead calm. And the disciples in the boat are like, what? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? There's no confrontation here. Do as you're told. What? That is amazing. And then, after rebuking the wind and the waves, do you see that Jesus rebukes the disciples? You can just imagine them off the bow. Calm down. <laughs> It calms down immediately. And he turns around. Would you calm down? <laughs> where's your faith? As he rebukes them, where's your faith? And they respond with fear and amazement. They're afraid, like, who is this man in the boat with us? That even the wind and the waves obey him. And you gotta know there's actually so much more at play right now in this encounter here as the disciples watch Jesus do this. And so tomorrow is Valentine's Day. Gentlemen, make sure you're knowing you ready? Ready? <laughs> Get ready. Right. Um, what did Beyonce teach us a long time ago? If you like it, then you should have put a ring on it. There we go. And we know, young men, if you like it, better put a ring on it or it's going away <laughs> with a fancy dance. Songs shape us. We know these things. Like, we actually learned, this is why the, the band takes seriously what we sing together because you're not going to remember a lot of the things that I say but that catchy tune, you'll play that out all week. So we want songs that are actually theologically informing you and reminding you and giving you language of prayer because songs shape us. That's why music is common throughout all of human culture. Some form of singing or song. And you know, the, the Israelites, they had a song book. It's known as the book of Psalms to us. These were the songs that they sang over and over and over. It was their prayer book, but it was also something they would put music to. They would sing these things. And so they know the songs and the songs would shape them. So I wanna read some of the Psalms so you could get an idea of how they're shaped and what they're feeling and experiencing, what they're thinking in this moment as they watch Jesus do this. Psalm 29:30. it says, the voice of the Lord is above the waters. The God of glory thunders, the Lord above the vast water. Or 65, seven, you, meaning God, you silence the roar of the seas, the roar of their waves, and the tumult of the nations. 89.9, you rule the raging sea. When its waves surge, you still them. 93, three to four, the floods have lifted up, Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their pounding waves greater than the roar of the huge torrent, the mighty breakers of the sea. The Lord on high is majestic. 
And they have these songs that shape them and they see that Jesus in the midst of this storm just stands up and is like, be still. And the calm just permeates everything. And they think, wait a second, only Yahweh, the one true God is supposed to be able to do that. Who is this man in the boat with me? The song shapes them. And they stand here afraid. Is God in the boat with me? And amazed. But he's man. Like, like, let's not be weird, but like me and you, we just went over there and picked up our robe and relieved ourselves. Like, what is this? You're a man and you're doing what only God can do. Who is this in the boat with me? This is amazing. So we keep going. Verse 26. It says, Then they sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When he got out on land, a demon-possessed man from the town met him. For a long time he had worn no clothes and did not stay in a house, but in the tombs. So they've, they've got off the boat. Now they're in Gentile territory. And so if you're familiar with scripture or being in the church world, you hear that Gentile Jew, like what is the deal with that? It sounds really racist. And it's essentially some categorization. The people of God were ethnic Jews and they were supposed to be inviting non-Jews into the people of God from the very beginning. And yet you have this kind of clear division to be a Jew, to be marked as the people of God or to be a Gentile, which means basically anyone who is not. So all other ethnicities, I would be a Gentile in the sense of my biology. And yet, spiritually, I am now a Jew. I am part of Israel, the true God, God's true people. And so you have here, this is Gentile territory. They're out of their home field. They're in a place where these people don't follow the one true God. They don't live according to the law, all these things. And so in Gentile territory, they now encounter a demon-possessed man. This is a man who is naked, and so he doesn't even realize his shame, like he is so far gone, and he's running around, he's violent, he doesn't live in homes, he actually lives in tombs. And so all these things are like, you're supposed to clothe yourself in very particular ways according to the law. You don't even wear clothes, brother. And he's running around, he's living in tombs, he's living in graves, those are unclean, you don't touch the deceased, you don't even walk on their graves, like that's gross, it defiles you, you are now ritually unclean, you cannot go to the temple, you should not be touching other people, all this stuff. And so this guy is the epitome of unclean. This man who's demon possessed, he comes towards them in verse 28. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him and said in a loud voice, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torment me. The demon clearly knew Jesus' authority and power over it. There is no contest here. So 29, says, for he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him and though he was guarded, bound by chains and shackles, he would snap the restraints and be driven by the demon into deserted places. So Jesus had issued a command telling the demon, get out of this man. And what does the demon do? Comes here, lying out prostrate and begging him, like, no, 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 don't torture me before the appointed day. Jesus standing here. This is a clear contrast. Do you hear how, it's dis- how Luke is describing, like, this, w- this was the physical ability of this guy, possessed by a demon, they would, they would lock him up because he's scary and he hurts people, he hurts himself. So like lock him up, ropes, chains, shackles, like cage the dude. He's insane. They'd cage the guy and then his brute strength, he'd just break free and take off running. Like, there goes the naked man. Ah, he's free again. Like, thank God he goes and lives in the tombs. <laughs> I don't want him living here anymore. 
This guy, he's crazy. You see the supernatural seeming strength of him. And yet, here it is, contrasted with Jesus. Jesus issues a command. And here they are. Oh, please don't torture us. <laughs> what? So he, he says in verse, verse 30, what, what is your name? Jesus asked him. Legion, he said. Because many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to banish them to the abyss. Legion. So what's the name of the demon? Like this likely is not the actual just specific name. A legion is a military term. And so first it conjures up this idea of like, here's the confrontation. Here's the fight. You have vying powers. As a legion, you realize, okay, Jesus is not up against a demon right now. He's up against many demons. Because legion means a lot. Like typically in Roman terms, this would be like one to 6,000 guys. There's a lot of demons in this guy. And here they are. And yet, they're saying like, please don't. <laughs> please don't. Don't. Don't torture us. Don't throw us into the abyss. It's not the appointed day. They know their day is coming. Like, it's not the day. It's not the day. But this guy, demon possessed, is laid out in front of Jesus. And yet the begging by the demons makes it clear who has the power. Here's the thing. You walk into a battle, like you hear like, oh, there's a fight over there. And you come around the corner and you see there's one dude standing up and there's another dude on the ground, hands clasped. Please don't, please don't. Is there any question as to who's winning or who has the power? No. Jesus has the power. They're begging for Jesus to not do what Jesus clearly can do. And so we keep going. Verse 32. A large herd of pigs was there feeding on the hillside. The demons begged him to permit them to enter the pigs and he gave them permission. The demons came out of the man and entered the pigs and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. These unclean spirits, these are demons, part of what would have originally been God's created angels who have rebelled against him and fallen from heaven. And these unclean spirits now turn to unclean animals that according to, remember they're in Gentile territory, but pigs were unclean animals. The Jews were not to eat pigs. Like don't be around them. They're unclean. And so these unclean spirits beg, like, please, hey, look at the pigs. Send us into the pigs. And Jesus permits it. Okay, go to the pigs. And so they leave the man in obedience to Jesus and they go into the unclean pigs. And the herd rushes down a steep bank. They throw themselves back into the sea and they drown. This is very odd. For many years, I wrestled with this, like, what is the deal? Does Jesus not like pigs? Like, I don't know. <laughs> Why would you do that? That's so weird. Why? Why was this necessary? And you think, like, it struck me that up to this point, Jesus says, he's already cast out demons. He's healed people. He's done supernatural things. And yet, I have to think, like, with my cynical mind, if I was there, and when I watch this happen, I think, like, hmm, he's figured something out. Like, maybe he's an incredible doctor and he understands something about human anatomy, biology that we don't know. And in some way, he's like, let me make this click for you. Like he did with that lady and that other lady and all these other times. Like, he just, he just really understands the body and he knows how to do this. Or he's really, really good at psychology. Like, he knows exactly what, like, that dude was crazy. He knows just what to say, just what to do to help that guy snap out of that weird mental state and come back to normal. But when he says... The demon now says, have mercy. Oh, wait, it's not the day. In fact, like, can we, go, can we go in the pigs? 
And Jesus says yes. And then at the authority and in obedience to Jesus, the man suddenly becomes normal and the pigs go crazy. They go berserk and they run off a cliff and drown in the sea. Now my cynical mind cannot say, wait a second, (laughs) you're just good at human anatomy or you're good at human psychology. No, I have to now branch out of that and say, something beyond that just happened. There was something there. Clearly, there really were demons in this man and those demons left that man and entered into another body being swine and they ran off a cliff in their insanity and drowned themselves. Like, wow, like visibly we see and immediately we see Jesus has the authority to cast out the demons that are oppressing the man. As you imagine now being the disciples watching that, like, wow, (laughs) when I remember back there in the water, you showed me you have authority over the storm. You have authority over what is natural. And I'm watching here, you're showing me you have authority over what is supernatural, what is not normal. What authority do you lack, Jesus? You have all authority. You've made it crystal clear to me. And verse 34, this is what happens after they've all watched this happen. When the men who tended them saw what had happened, they ran off and reported it in the town and the countryside. Then people went out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and found the man the demons had departed from, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Meanwhile, the eyewitnesses reported to them how the demon-possessed man was delivered. Then all the people of the Gerasene region asked him to leave them because they were gripped by great fear. So getting into the boat, he returned. You think, what a sad ending. That they see this, they hear this, this power of Jesus. Word of this spreads, and as word of this spreads, fear spreads. They are so afraid of this man with this authority that instead of celebrating that an oppressed man has been set free, they say, can you leave? We don't want you here. And he gets in a boat and he leaves. And you think, no, no, Gentiles, you missed it. Why? Because there is a fear that grows and a fear in us that can grow to rejection there's a fear that can grow into us that turns into reverence and a faith rightly placed in the Son of God who can free you from oppression. So where does your fear lead you to? Let that fear lead you to the conclusion, this is the Lord. This is the uncontested God of the cosmos. This is the one who can control all that seemingly is natural. This is the one that can control all that is unnatural. This is the God who is in total control. This is Jesus. This is the Lord. The demonstrated power of Jesus gives us a certainty of his lordship. Do you remember the whole book? He's saying, Luke is writing this and he's saying, dear Theophilus, hey, this is what I want for you. I want you to have a certainty about the things in which I've written to you about, the things that you've learned. I want you to have a certainty. You can have a certainty of the lordship of Christ. See the way that he exercises his authority. He demonstrates his power and know for certain he is the Lord. This is God. This is the Lord. This is Jesus' mission to free the oppressed, saying, watch this as I flex. How can he do this? He can only do this because he actually has the authority to do this. He has the power to do this. This is authority over the natural storm, authority over the supernatural, over the demonic. There is nothing that is beyond the hand of Jesus. He is the Lord. 
And I keep saying that and just assuming you know what it means, but I think many of us don't actually know what it means. And yet your salvation is tied, according to Romans, that if you confess with your mouth that he is the Lord, you'll be saved. Like we're to confess his lordship. But when I say, Jesus, you are Lord, what do I even mean by that? What is the Lord? And this actually goes back um, we, we need to start with understanding scripture, all of the scriptures, the 66 books of the, of the Bible that collectively make the library of scripture, the Bible. Um, these are written not in English. We have translations. And so they were originally written largely in Hebrew and Greek. And so Hebrew, um, in Hebrew, we have Lord, and in Greek, we have Lord. And so these terms actually come back, so I wanna invite you into what that really means. Um, someone far smarter than I, Dr. White, he writes this in the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible. He says, rendering of the Hebrew Adonai, or of the Greek kurios, in Israel, both piety and fear inhibited the correct pronunciation of the sacred consonants of the divine name, probably Yahweh. Instead, the vowel sounds of Elohim, meaning God, or Adonai, meaning Lord, from Adon, ruler, Lord, master, or husband, were combined with YHWH. And so, such a reverence for who God is and your name attached to your personhood, such a reverence for God himself that they would not pronounce his name the right way. And so it became a mystery. And so you put together these YHWH and we think likely Yahweh, and yet that's such a deep reverence. Let's not even pronounce it. And so he continues on. He says, in the Septuagint, the regular expression for Lord or Master is kurios, which in the Greek New Testament also is used of masters, husbands, and rulers, of God and of pagan gods. It is used of Jesus as a customary title of respect. It also retains its Septuagint associations of faith, reverence, and worship. And so when we say, what does Lord mean? In short, we confess Jesus as Lord, meaning that he has divine authority that rightly makes us respect and submit to him in a way unlike any other. There is no greater authority. He is the Lord. And so then we ask the question, if Jesus is the Lord and he has all of this authority, what does he do with this authority? What does Jesus do with all of this power, all of this authority? He protects and he frees his people. He uses his power for us, for his beloved, to protect us, to free us, like in that boat, when you don't need to be afraid. But here, let me take care of this storm for you. This, this man, out of his mind, can do nothing for himself, terribly oppressed, and he frees him. And the man is found at the feet of Jesus, loving him. And so as I've wrestled through this this week, some things have just really struck me that I would like to invite you into. And one is, what do you think the disciples were thinking when they watched all this play out? Here's Jesus sleeping in a boat. Come on, this makes no sense. Wake up, we are dying. Do you care? Jesus gets up, rebukes the wind and the waves, calm. And then he turns and rebukes them. Where's your faith? Who is this man? Who is in the boat with me? And they get on shore, and here comes a crazy guy. <laughs> Naked man running around. He's crazy strong. This is weird. And Jesus has the man come to him, fall flat, prostrate. Please, please, don't torture us. What's your name? Legion. There's a bunch of demons in here. 
get out. Can we go in the pigs? Yeah, go in the pigs. Man stands up, looks great, smiles for the first time in God knows how long. I need some clothes. <laughs> this is weird. You guys have any clothes? Yeah. Look at the pigs. The pigs are going crazy, frantic, and they just take off and they run off a cliff and drown in the sea. You got to think, if I was a disciple in that moment, watching that, think, I just came off of a crazy high of thinking I was going to drown in the chaos waters. All of what's associated with the sea is like, it is not good to sink into the sea is to go into the waters of judgment. Like they actually thought Sheol is deep within the earth or down in the depths of the sea. And so for the Jewish mindset to see something in the sea and to think I was close to going into the waters of judgment, I was about to drown. I was about to have this awful thing happen to me and yet I was freed, I was rescued, I was set free from the oppression of nature and I came on shore, oh, dry land, this is so good. Whoa, crazy man. And then he cast the demons out, the when the swine herd, like demonic pigs, take off running and now they're drowning in the sea. They're sinking into the waters of judgment. The demons are now drowning. You would do that for me, Jesus? You would do that for me? You think, what an assurance to these disciples in this moment. Thank you, Jesus, for demonstrating your power. And in our postmodern minds, like, oh, the pigs. I can all see the beauty of what he's doing here. There's no question he loves you and he has the power to free you. He loves you. And you gotta, you gotta land with this. The demons, the demon pigs, we'll call them, drowning in the waters of judgment is not what will free you. It is the one who actually was marching on his way to go under the waters of judgment for you. The one who would be nailed to a cross, taking all of your sin, all of your shame on himself, having lived a sinless life and then says, I will give you my righteousness and I've taken your filth, all of your guilt. It's your condemnation nailed to a cross in Jesus, the one who has all of this power. Him dying, him going under the waters of judgment, absorbing the very wrath of God that was due for us and he takes it on himself. He suffered in your place. He died for us so that we could live, so that we could be set free. So we are the oppressed and he has freed us. And he rose again victorious, having conquered sin and death. He rose again and offers us everlasting life to be with him, to be with the one who has all authority in heaven and earth, to walk with him, to be like this crazy demon-possessed man who is set free. And then where do we find him? Dressed in clothes that were not his own, having been given someone else's what he did not deserve, and now just at the feet of Jesus, in adoration, looking up in a right posture, you are Lord. And so I want to close asking you a question. Now this is the word of God. Jesus is called the word. And when you read this, I hope that you read it rightly. We need to read it literally. And yet, this is the voice of God. And so today, I want you to hear and imagine like you're on that boat and everything's going crazy. I don't know what's happening in your life for many of you. For many of you, I do. And I know there's so many hard things. This is what it is to be in a broken world. And yet there's a God who steps into this. And I want you to hear him waking up and you see him and you think, I want to be like that. It's where I'm not, I'm not so shaken. And he's like, let me calm this. And then he turns. And he turns to you as you read the gospel according to Luke. You should in that moment hear the Savior say, 
Where is your faith? And maybe you need to voice that. Because I've always just read over that. It's like, yeah, good question, Jesus. Like, get him back in line. But this week, as I wrestled with this, I can hear Jesus saying, Kevin, where is your faith? You're looking at all of this insanity. And you know what? As he calms it, what he does for me, the good shepherd leading me to quiet waters, he reminds me, you're upset because you're terrified of what other people will think of you. You're upset because you have limited capability. Haven't you seen? I have all power. I'm the one at work in all this. Why are you afraid? And I think, hmm, I want to answer that question, Jesus. I want to tell you my faith is in you. So whatever you're facing right now, maybe you need to actually say it. Maybe you're not even a believer. And today you need to hear the Savior, the God of the cosmos, who steps into this mess to save this mess. You need to hear him say, where is your faith? And you need to actually say, my faith is in you because I can't do this myself. But you're the one who can calm the storm. You're the one who can set me free from the demonic. You're the one who paid it all. You're the one who actually went under the waters of judgment. You were placed in a tomb so that I don't have to die, but I could die with you in your death so I can live with you in your life forever. So today, where is your faith? Will you say, wherever you are on the journey of following Jesus, say it, my faith is in you, Lord, because you are the Lord. Let's pray. God, I am so amazed by you and the way in which you love us so graciously that we don't deserve you. And yet you come at your own expense and you step into situations like we see with the disciples and yet we see it in our lives. That we can be so fixated on the calamities around us and think that this certain death, this is the end of me. And yet you're asleep, calm as ever because you are sovereign over it all. Yet you're gracious enough that you would show us that power and that that power is now for us. So Spirit, as you work in us, would you help us to have a greater clarity of what that means and how we can live in light of that and step with you. Father, would you be glorified above all as we lay down our lives and even our hands saying, I have nothing, but you have everything. Let us, Jesus, rest at your feet to hear your words, to answer you rightly, to actually respond when you ask where our faith is. And God, may it forever be that our faith is in you.